Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Plugged by 25 dams, the Colorado is the world's most regulated river drainage. The Colorado River provides most of the water supply of Las Vegas, Tucson, and San Diego, and much of the power and water of Las Vegas, uh, Los Angeles, and Phoenix, cities that are home to more than 25 million people. If it stopped flowing, the water in its reservoirs might hold out for three or four years, but then it would be necessary to abandon most of Southern California and Arizona, much of Colorado, New Mexico and Wyoming, and, of course, much of Utah. For the entire American Southwest, the Colorado is the river of life, which makes it all the more tragic and ironic that by the time it approaches its final destination, it's been reduced to a shadow upon the sand. It's delta dry and deserted. It's flow toxic, a trickle seeping into the sea. We're going to talk about the Colorado River with Wade Davis. His new book is River Notes. It follows the news. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Disability Law Center, celebrating 35 years of helping people with their disabilities in Utah by protecting their legal rights and advocating for appropriate services. Information at disabilitylawcenter.org. And Colligan Water of Cache Valley, family-owned and operated for more than 62 years, providing Colligan bottled water, salt delivery, or soft and conditioned water. Hey, Colligan Man, service from the man in blue, online at logan.colliganman.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We were uh, going to have an interview with Wade Davis on his new book, River Notes, A History of the Colorado River. And we will reschedule that for a future time. We're uh, trying to uh, connect in a fairly remote area of British Columbia, where Wade Davis and his family have a cabin. And he had made his way down to uh, the nearest, uh, I think, store and a, and a payphone there, <laughs> trying to uh, test the limits of technology. Um, but we'll uh, maybe get uh, Mr. Davis when he is uh, closer to us, a little more secure phone line. So that'll be coming up. We'll alert you to that. Coming up in a place of a conversation with Wade Davis, we hope you'll stay tuned for a uh, conversation with Terry Tempest-Williams. This is a uh, conversation from last year on her book, uh, When Women Were Birds. First, uh, unfinished business from Thursday of last week. Uh, Sherry Quinn on Science Questions uh, had some interviews from the Small Satellite Conference, which happens every year on the Utah State University uh, campus. Hope you're able to catch her program on Thursday. And Charles Ashurst writes in a response. Here's his email from Thursday. Here's a thought, says Charles. Utah's politics is dominated by the supposition that anthropogenic climate change is somewhere between a hoax and highly suspect. If that is correct, then billions of dollars of investment into non-carbon-emitting energy is a terrible misallocation of resources. Wouldn't a small investment in small Earth-observing satellites that could debunk this hoax, one and for all, be worth it? Now that small, highly capable satellites are dramatically coming down in cost, here's an opportunity for Utah's Republicans to uh, put their personal responsibility, private initiative-driven ideology into practice. Get together a consortium of private interests and raise funds to launch Earth-observing satellites that would measure Earth's thermal energy budget. You're convinced that the NSF, the NOAA, NASA, and pretty much all of the science have been corrupted by global warming orthodoxy? Then bypass NASA and launch your own satellites. You're convinced that these climate models are a bunch of hooey? Then don't model but measure Earth's 
thermal energy budget. That's Charles Asher's. Thanks for that to comment. You can comment on Sherry's small satellite program or any program at upraxis at gmail.com. In fact, you can comment today. We'll get your comment on at the breaks, even though we're re- revisiting this conversation from last year. And uh, Terry Tempest uh, Williams' mother told her, I'm leaving you all my journals, but you must promise me you won't look at them until after I'm gone. And here's what Terry Tempest Williams writes. They were exactly where she said they would be. Three shelves of beautiful cloth-bound books. I opened the first journal. It was empty. I opened the second journal. It was empty. I opened the third. It, too, was empty. Shelf after shelf after shelf. All of my mother's journals were blank. In her book, When Women Were Birds... Acclaimed Utah writer Terry Tempest Williams considers the mystery of her mother's journals and the questions, what does it mean to have a voice? So we asked her that question, many others, on our interview. Terry Tempest Williams, the author of Refuge, Finding Beauty in a Broken World, and many other books on the program today. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page, or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're very pleased to welcome for the hour today Utah writer Terry Tempest Williams, of course, author of Finding Beauty in a Broken World, Refuge, and many other critically acclaimed books. Her new book, When Women Were Birds, 54 Variations on Voice. Terry Tempest Williams... Thanks for joining us. Welcome. Good morning, Tom. How are you? Oh, doing doing well. I wonder if you could, if you have your book with you, uh, just to set this up, if, if you could read the, the brief opening chapter. Of course, Tom. Thank you. I am 54 years old, the age my mother was when she died. This is what I remember. We were lying on her bed with a mohair blanket covering us, I was rubbing her back, feeling each vertebra with my fingers as I rung on a ladder. It was January, and the ruthless clamp of cold bore down on us outside. Yet inside, Mother's tenderness and clarity of mind carried its own warmth. She was dying in the same way she was living, consciously. I'm leaving you all my journals, she said, facing the shuttered window as I continued rubbing her back, but you must promise me that you will not look at them until after I am gone. I gave her my word, and then she told me where they were. I didn't know my mother kept journals. A week later, she died. A month later, I found myself alone in the family home. I kept expecting mother to appear. It was the right time to read her journals. They were exactly where they said they would be. She said they would be. Three shelves of beautiful cloth-bound books, some floral, some paisley, others in solid colors. The spines of each were perfectly aligned against the lip of the shelves. I opened the first journal. It was empty. I opened the second journal. It was empty. I opened the third. It, too, was empty, as was the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, shelf after shelf after shelf. All my mother's journals were blank. And you had not known that she kept journals before? I did not. Uh, My mother was a very private woman. So, you know, I, it was a great surprise to me that she said, you know, I have three shelves full. Um, and it was an incredibly, uh, 
shocking moment when I realized all of her journals were blank. And it, it was like a second death, honestly. Yeah, I would imagine. What did you what, what did you have in your mind in anticipation before you opened the journals? You know, I was just so excited to finally know what my mother was thinking. Um, you know, I think that in that month of her passing, you know, it was a great solace because I thought I will always have her words with me. Um, but instead, it was her silences. And honestly, uh, in that moment, I just gathered them all up after the shock of it, wondering what was she trying to say? Was this a cruel joke? Was it a generosity? Did she want me to fill them? Um, was it an act of defiance? You know, Mormon women write. Um, they write in journals. It was a total perplexing mystery. And um, what I can tell you, Tom, is I just gathered them up. I took them home, and I just you know, through the years, wrote in them unceremoniously. And I really didn't deal with it, think about it, couldn't afford to emotionally, until I turned 54, the age my mother was when she passed. I was going to ask you why, why the, the wait, or the, whether that was purposeful, that you waited until 54, or, or just uh, sort of happened, that you were emotionally ready at that point? You know, I think, um, I don't know about you, but I just buried it in the soles of my feet and I think it was too painful and and then when I turned 54 you know I think if you've lost a parent particularly a mother when you become the age where they died it's a very um it's a sharp edge and it was for me uh, and I think you you come to grips with your own mortality thinking ah this is how old she was and Honestly, I didn't realize how young she was, you know, and, and how vibrant and how much living she had ahead of her. So I think, um, I thought, okay, I can go back into this material now, not as a daughter, but as a woman, and begin asking questions I wouldn't have even known to ask when I was in my 20s. Hmm. You write somewhere in the book that uh, you wish your mother had known that you were uh, a sister, not a daughter. I think that's exactly the point I'm making, Tom. Yeah. And uh, I think that if we live long enough, that, that really is the case. Hmm. Uh, so you, you said you, you, uh, you wrote in your mother's journals? I did. Hmm. And, you know, nothing special, but just yeah. filled them. Yeah. Um, I did notice, as I was looking back, that in each one, you know, I did say this is one of mother's journals. Hmm. Um, but that was it. Uh, and at some point, your goal became to try to discover her voice and rediscover your own voice? It, yes. You know, I think that when Women Were Birds became, I, how to say this, you know, it's definitely an autobiography of voice. What is voice? How do we find it, lose it, retrieve it, uh, honor it, take care of it? But I think in the writing, and I, this is what I love, is you think you're going one direction and you find you go another. Otherwise, what's the point? And I thought I was writing a book about voice. I think, in truth, I may have written a book about silence. Hmm. And the two are related. They are. Okay. They are. Uh, and and I think it's that notion, you know, how does silence nurture our voice? And also the, the paradox. Um, what silences us? And I think most... Um, Critically, 
how do we silence ourselves and why? What are we afraid of? Mm-hmm. And it, it is fear, mostly fear, silences ourselves? Well, when I think about when I silence myself, it's fear of retribution, fear of criticism. Um, but then I think you reach a point where uh, our silences no longer protect us. Mm. How about you? Yeah. I'm interested, you know, I'm speaking as a woman. Do you do you feel silenced at times? Yes, and it, it, and it is fear, I think, mostly. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And what are you afraid of? Um, well, uh, I think some of what, and, and maybe this is more, you know, uh, maybe this is a gender stereotype. I don't know what you think about this, but revealing too much of myself. And, I think and that's human, don't b- you? Border between secrets and, and what you reveal. I guess that is human. Yes, definitely. And I think you yeah. bring up another good point, which is um, also in the book, the notion of secrets. You know, my mother had secrets. I think we all carry secrets. And how does that impact our, our voice? And again, uh, what we carry as human beings. I guess the, some of this is about uh, those, those borders between um, what we can know of each other and what we can't know, what we reveal and what we don't reveal. Um, I, I assume that uh, you knew quite a bit about your mother, and yet there's, there's some that you don't know and can't know. I think that's exactly right. And again, the paradox, you know, my mother and I were incredibly close. And I would have told you that that I knew a great deal about my mother. Now I'm not so sure. You know, I think she was a, she loved mystery. And I think what I have come to understand with her journals, the difference between mystery and mysterious. You know, at first it was a mystery to be solved. Um, Now I appreciate the mysterious nature of them, and it's something to be honored and to be celebrated. But in truth, we can never know another person's heart. And in that way, I think my mother gave me a great gift. Mm. I wonder if you'd tell me a bit about your mother. You, you do describe your, your mother uh, in the book. Um, growing up, you said she, she had a, an intensity about her. Uh, she was quieter than your father. And you kind of knew them in in these ways. Your mother, your father, is kind of a force of nature. If something needed to be done, wherever it was, uh, that was him. <laughs> but, right, your, but your mother was very strong and intense in her own way. Right. We consider my father still do our action hero. Uh, my mother was a very graceful woman. She was, a, as I said, a private woman, not a silent one. Um, she was also very wicked in her humor. And you know, when my father turned forty, she wrapped all of his birthday presents in black. Um, <laughs> I remember. Her phone call one day said, would you like to go to New York? Lillian Hellman is, um, you know, Little Foxes is playing Lillian Hellman's film. And I thought, I didn't know my mother loved Lillian Hellman. Well, it turns out that her favorite person on the planet, her hero, Elizabeth Taylor, was starring in it. They shared the same birthday, um, the same year. So I went, of course, we went back. Um, We were in the middle of the play. It was divine. It was wonderful. It was reaching its dramatic climax. Elizabeth Taylor was mesmerizing, and my mother whispers, we have to go. And I just went, are you kidding? The play isn't done. People were telling us to be quiet. It's New York. And the next thing I know, my mother is standing up, excusing herself. I follow. We get onto the street, and I just said, what is going on? And she said, Elizabeth Taylor comes to Sardis after the play. I want to be here to see her. And sure enough, on you know, right 
as clockwork. Elizabeth Taylor walks in with her purple caftan, her jewels, my mother sitting on this settee um, in the parlor. And as Miss Taylor goes to walk by, my mother trips her. And Miss Taylor says, oh, please forgive me. And my mother says, not at all. And they have a conversation. You know, that's who my mother was. She was <laughs> the deepest person I know and at times also the most shallow. <laughs> that's quite a woman. And the other thing, Tom, you know, what I can tell you about my mother, you know, she was diagnosed with breast cancer at 38 with four children. And every night my mother quietly would, would watch the sun set over Great Salt Lake and quietly applaud. Hmm. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, that's a, a glimpse into into her her inner being. Uh, I wonder uh, you you also uh, write in the book that uh, especially uh, women uh, tend to uh, I don't know how to phrase this subsume their their wants their needs in in the needs of those around them. I think that's true. And and it's certainly true for your mother. It's certainly true. It was certainly true with my mother. Um, I think that's what we do as women. Relationships come first. You know, I know as a writer, um, people say, do you write every day? No, I don't know any woman that has that luxury. You know, our relationships come first, at least for me and um, for most of the women that I know. You, uh, you, you quote you. You have several touching letters from your, from your mother to you uh, throughout the book. One of those, I'm thinking in this in this uh, context, uh, she wrote to you on the eve of your your wedding to your to your husband, and she's telling you about marriage and and uh, some advice, uh, which I thought was was extraordinary. Yeah, I love you know her letters are they continue to be like water to me. And I take them in deeply. I love that she wrote me the letter and just said, you know, keep it alive, keep it mysterious, um, keep it uh, full of adventures, and honor your own solitude. And uh, I think Brooke and I have have kept those words close. It also, Tom, I put that letter in in the context of what precedes it, which is this idea of Nushu script, that among a certain uh, population of Chinese women, they held a secret language, and uh, the script itself looks like bird tracks on snow, and it's not square like most Chinese characters, but more linear. And this was a language that women spoke to each other when there was no one there to correct them. And that on the eve of a bride's wedding, the mother and the women uh, would would write to to their daughters about the advice upon marriage. And I thought, you know, we're not so different. My mother did the same thing for me. It just wasn't in Nushu's script. It wasn't in a black book, but in a beautiful letter in her own script. If you just joined us, we're talking with Utah writer Terry Tempest-Williams. Her latest book is When Women Were Birds. Uh, she's uh, examining the, the mystery of uh, her mother's blank journals and uh, what it means to have a voice. The title, I wonder if you could uh, talk a bit about the title. There are birds all the way, bird imagery all the way through the, through the book, When Women Were Birds. There's irony in the title. Uh, most birds that sing are male. And so I pondered, you know, I thought about uh, when women were birds, what did our voices sound like? Uh, 
there's also you know the metaphor of of birds in cages, and there's lots of references in literature to that described to women. But I think more importantly, Tom, I'll read you the last paragraph of the book. Once upon a time when women were birds, there was the simple understanding that to sing at dawn and to sing at dusk was to heal the world through joy. The birds still remember what we have forgotten, that the world is meant to be celebrated. Hmm. So we've forgotten. And I think this is a remembering, and, and it's not something that, oh, voila, I have a voice, but but it's something that I think we, I know I struggle with daily, um, but how do we find that, that strength to speak what is in our hearts? And I love that idea that if we fail in this century, it is because we are afraid. And I think now more than ever, for both women and men, it is crucial that we speak out and speak on behalf of the things that matter most to us. I mean, if if we just think about in terms of democracy, democracy works only if we have a voice, and many voices acquire a chorus of voices. And uh, especially crucial now because the stakes are so high? Is that what you're saying? I think the stakes are high, mm-hmm. uh, whether it's climate change, whether it's in our own state of Utah regarding public lands, whether it's health care, um, whether it's women's health issues, I think it's absolutely essential that we speak. I know it's important for us as women to speak up in our own families. I'm amazed at how much I don't say, which would surprise some people and wish that I was quieter. But I, I just think it's about conversation, and uh, everything turns on that. Can we speak to each other in a language that opens our hearts rather than closes them? And and I think that's the other thing. We've been talking about voice. We've been talking about the counterbalance of silence. I think we can also add to that the the power of listening, deep listening. Mm. Um, part of your book, this is Chapter 41, you write about how you were uh, transformed by a night in jail. I wonder if you tell us about that. Right. Um, not for a noble cause. It wasn't about... War. It wasn't about stopping nuclear testing. It wasn't, you know, I think about Tim De Christopher and, and his heroic act of um, his protest of oil and gas leases. I spent a night in jail, 36 hours actually, um, because I was speeding. I was going 48 miles in a 35 mile per hour zone in Soda Springs, Idaho. And I would say it was about sloppy living. Um, I also did not realize I was driving with an expired driver's license. So nothing heroic here. I called Brooke. He was in Wyoming. We didn't have enough money in our checking account to pay bail. And I thought, how bad can one night in jail be? And you promise you'll pick me up in the next day. He had a commitment that night. Um, It was grim. And talk about silences and shadows and having no clue what goes on behind not just closed doors but bars. Uh, These women were largely under 30. They were young Mormon women um, who were addicted to crystal meth. Their husbands, boyfriends were working um, in the oil and gas industry on the patches in Wyoming. Um, Heartbreaking stories. And the women wanted to tell them. 
and uh, they were giving out recipes on how to create crystal meth as though they were their mother's or grandmother's recipes on brownies. And they didn't know when they were going to get out. They didn't know if once they were in the system, they would always be in the system. You know, I was in a privileged position. I knew I was going to get out. And it, I think about them every day, Tom. Mm. And it was deeply humbling. Once you put on that orange suit and you are shackled around your wrists and waist and ankles, um, you're neutralized pretty fast. Mm. And I realized, you know, they may be in there for speed. I was also in jail because of speed of a different nature with a different addiction. And how do you feel that, that transformed you? How how are you different coming out of that experience? That's such a good question. Um, a, again, realizing how privileged I am, the resources that I have, again, the voice. Um, B, there's really very little difference in those who are in jail and and those of us who are not, and it's about luck. I think about the justice system, um, one of retribution that has very little to do with restoration, and I, I think a lot about restorative justice and what that might look like. Two million people in this country are incarcerated. So uh, I, I guess I'm very mindful in a very visceral way of what injustice looks like, feels like, and I can tell you... Um, it's ugly. And the favors that were traded at night between the guards and the women, the drugs that were uh, given and trades for sexual, sexual favors, uh, nothing to read, um, no exercise to be had. You know, I think that our county jails are, are really, really dark places. I don't know if it was is this experience or 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 another occasion. You, you write very moving in the book. This uh, stuck with me about women who would uh, hold their own fingers, uh, imagining uh, children who who they had born and and then given up for adoption. Absolutely, was... I remember the woman next to the bunk. There, it was a pod, an open space, very small space actually, with um, six bunk beds. There were thirteen of us. There was another bunk bed stray. And at night, this one woman who had just given birth and had to give her um, son up for adoption at night, she would sing a lullaby holding her finger as though it were her child's holding her. Uh, yeah, heartbreaking. Uh, she, she doesn't know, of course, where, where this child, uh, potentially where this child is gone and, and doesn't know when she'll, she'll be out. No. Yeah. And every one of those women, you know, had stories like that. I remember sentences... Um, what we had in common was the color orange. We were all wearing it. And one woman said, why do I hate the color orange when red and yellow are my favorite colors? Hmm. Yeah. Most of them, you know, and some of them were in because of, of just bad luck again, you know, hmm. life. It's, it's so precarious. I think about that a lot. Uh, freedom and imprisonment, the, the themes that run through through this book as well. And, and I, I want to uh, relate this with, uh, you did an interview with Tim DeChristopher in Orion Magazine, and I was uh, struck by several passages uh, f- from that. Of course, he's uh, he's in federal prison for a couple of years for, for his actions. Those who agree with his actions uh, see it as activism. Of course, those opposed, uh, uh, I guess, see this as a just sentence. Um, and uh, in this interchange with Tim DeChristopher, 
Uh, you talk about how uh, each has to find their own path uh, to activism, the name of the community. And uh, you talk about um, the challenge you heard from Tim to Christopher was what's most uncomfortable, the, the most uncomfortable thing you can do, the greatest risk with the most at stake. Uh, is that what you think about is, is what uh, people who are, uh, I guess, uh, want to get into this arena, uh, that's what they should do? You know, I think it's very important for people to know their gifts and their strengths. And, you know, for Tim, it was committing civil disobedience and risking going to jail, which he is now in prison. That is his path. That was his strength, and that was his calling um, and his choice. You know, that's not for everyone. Um, there are those who who have children. You know, jail is not an option for them. There are those who who have jobs, jail is not an option for them, or civil disobedience. Um, and that's where I was challenging Tim and saying, you know, each of us can contribute to the open space of democracy in our own way with the gifts that are ours each in our own time. And, and I think that's what self-knowledge is about, knowing what one can do and what one can't do. I think where Tim's point was so well taken is, where where's that comfort line, and what are we willing to risk? And I think risk is the key word there. And, you know, when he asked me, you know, what is your risk? For me, my risk is, is in speaking. You know, every time I have to speak, I am physically ill. It terrifies me. Um, but, but there's something beyond that terror, and that is, um, you know, trying to make a difference in, in the world. I write. That's what I do. Um, you know, other people have other strengths and, and other gifts. I look at my father. My father, you know, has committed himself to higher education and um, scholarships and working on that level. Um, you know, I look at my niece. Her gift is teaching. She's working in a very diverse school in Salt Lake City, and she's worth it working with at-risk girls. So I think each person contributes in their own way. We are going to take a brief break, and we'll be back with uh, Terry Tempest-Williams. We're talking about her new book, uh, When Women Were Birds, uh, 54 uh, Variations on Voice. Uh, when her mother was dying, uh, Terry Tempest-Williams' mother told her, I'm leaving you all my journals. Promise me you won't look at them until after I've gone. And when she uh, went to open them up, uh, three shelves uh, immaculately stacked uh, of journals, all empty. And uh, when she herself was approaching uh, 54, the age that her mother died, uh, Terry Tempest-Williams um, has written this book, Meditation on uh, What Does It Mean to Have a Voice, and many other important questions. And we'll be back after this brief break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Disability Law Center, celebrating 35 years of helping people with their disabilities in Utah by protecting their legal rights and advocating for appropriate services. Information at disabilitylawcenter.org. 
Before summer ends, now's a good time to donate the vehicle you no longer need to Utah Public Radio. Donating is easy by calling 877-877-7501 or donating securely online at upr.org. Trade your car, truck, motorcycle, or RV for the quality programming that UPR provides. You may even qualify for a tax deduction. Call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org. Thanks for staying with us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're uh, talking with Terry Tempest Williams, uh, Utah writer, of course, uh, author of acclaimed books such as Refuge and Finding Beauty in a Broken World. Her new book is When Women Were Birds, and it's uh, Meditations on Voice, uh, a response to her mother's blank journals. What does it mean to have a voice? And uh, there are many uh, themes uh, in the book. Uh, It's uh, getting uh, great reviews, and uh, we're... uh, very pleased to be talking with Terry Tempest Williams on the program today. I was going to ask you if you enjoy this. Uh, I guess uh, you, you say uh, public speaking a, a, a big fear. This I don't know about readings. Is that is that okay for you? You know, I'm always terrified, mm-hmm. but uh, so it goes, right? I guess so. Yeah. <laughs> I read that. where public speaking is the number one fear in people, and I'm right there with yeah. them. But <laughs> you know, once you get going, then you forget and. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, I, you know, I, it's a privilege to be able to share these ideas, and it's been really fascinating um, hearing people's comments about their own journals, their own sense of voice and silence. And mm. so, you know, I think the most we can hope for is to create a conversation. Mm. I have to tell you, I loved the commentary uh, by Steve Irwin about, is that? Uh, uh, Steve Eaton, yes. Steve Eaton, yes. about the Basenjis. We have a Basenji, so my <laughs> mind is, is with Rio. Oh, wonderful, with your own. Exactly. And, yes. you know, they're supposed to be quiet dogs. They, they're barkless. But since we're talking about voice, I think Basenjis have the most wild, wonderful, unpredictable voices. Um, Rio sings, howls um, with Mozart's Requiem. Oh, or oh. Janis Joplin. He has a wide range of <laughs> That commentary. Is, anyway, yeah. I, my mind is is with dogs right now. <laughs> that is a wide range. That's that's an eclectic dog. <laughs> yeah, uh, I I was reading an author snapshot. This kind of gave me a, a little insight into you um, from the reading room. Your favorite author? You list several, but Walt Whitman said that list. I love Whitman. Don't you? Uh, well, yes, yes, certainly. Uh, why Whitman? I just if there's one person I I could meet, I you know I loved. I love his lists. I love his passion. I love how close his ear is to the ground, you know, in something like Song of of Myself. I love his work with the soldiers, you know, how um, in Washington, D.C., you know, he he sat by the dying soldiers' side and wrote letters for them. I love that he loved Lincoln. Um, no, I just I think he's a great American voice that uh, continues to be as relevant as any writer today. Hmm. Uh, by the way, in this uh, survey, you had a, a twenty questions. You had your own, and uh, you get in your favorite word, uh, petrichor. Am I saying that correct? Correct me. Yeah, I think it's such a beautiful word. The smell of rain before it falls. Hmm. Yeah, that that is a beautiful image. And the desert, you know, you, whenever you, 
walk outside or if you're out walking and you, you get that smell, you know rain is coming. And to me, it's, it's that, that essence of, of hope mm-hmm. in, in times of drought. And I think it's a beautiful word. You write uh, quite a bit in this book about um, water and desert, I guess the absence of, of water. Some of your earliest uh, and fondest memories are of, at, at the ocean. Yes, I was born in Riverside, California, and my father was in the service in the Air Force, and my mother would take me to the beach almost every day, and I think that memory remains. Mm. And even though we live in the desert, you know, to live in the desert is to have a mind of water, and uh, I think about that. And you love both. Absolutely. Absolutely. And again, absence is presence, presence mm-hmm. is absence, Those, that dialectic, that dance. And, you know, living in the desert, it was once covered with water, and you feel that. Mm-hmm. In the same way, you know, when you're at the ocean, I'm very mindful of, of aridity, you know. Again, it's, it's memory, it's what we hold in our bodies. Another factor, you write, when you were young, uh, you you came to know early that what you love can hurt you. You know, the the, the waves would knock you down. Uh, so there's a duality as well that uh, that you, I guess, had had present from from very young age. Right, and you get up. You're knocked down. You get up. You're knocked down. You get up. Um, you run. You move back in toward the wave. I I think the ocean is is so compelling and. I think we feel that our origins are there and walking the rack line every morning, high tide, low tide, and the surprises that await us. I think there's so many metaphors for our, our own lives. Uh, three adjectives that's best describe you, and I want to launch into some of your, your family again. You say intense, passionate, and present. And it's that present that uh, that's hard to do, isn't it? To be intense yeah, and present? I think my mother gave us that gift. You know, as I said, at 38, being diagnosed with breast cancer, a very aggressive breast cancer, she took nothing for granted, and therefore neither did we. And when my mother was with you, she was completely present. You were the only person in the room. She, Her eyes, her ears, she was with you. My grandmother also had that gift. And I think that's all we have. And, you know, I know in my own situation, recently I was diagnosed with um, a tangle in my brain, and one of the options is surgery, and I chose not to take that option because of the risk factors. And I remember the surgeon, the neuro- neurologist, saying, how well do you live with uncertainty? And my response was, what else is there? And I believe that, and that's a, a gift that my mother gave me. I believe one of the possible outcomes with this would be literal silence. Am I right now? You, you wouldn't be able to, to speak if, if a certain outcome came up, give about. That's correct. Um, you know, where this sits on my brain is in the Wernicke part of the brain that oversees language, pattern thinking, metaphor, all the things that you like, care about. Um, but I've, I've watched members in my family um, live with cancer and die from cancer. And that is life, and there's no exceptions. And so I think the the challenge we have is how how to live in the present gracefully, hmm. because none of us know what lies ahead. 
you, there's a chapter, maybe I'll have you recount this story, but it, it talks about this, that uh, you say the women in your family have, have this gift. And you talk about it, going to a party, I think a family party, and, and an aunt of yours, I believe it is. Uh, and you ascribe that, that gift to her, that she's very present. When she's talking to you, it's, uh, you're, you're very present before her. Right. Uh, but, but you come away conflicted. She's, what she wants is, is for you to uh, join the rest of the women in the family and, and have babies. She, she looks, glances at your flat stomach. and uh, <laughs> The once flat stomach, right? Y- yes. Um, <laughs> and, and at the time, you have this idea that's going to become refuge. You know, we live in a culture uh, of a dominant religion, and I grew up Mormon, and I'm no longer Orthodox, and that carries its own, what, stresses, um, growing pains, I would say even um, scars. You know, I don't think we ever escape our conditioning, nor do we want to, but it's not easy to break set and... I think that as a writer, if you're going to attempt to be honest with your own feelings or, or point of view, you're going to offend certain people, and and I have certainly done that, um, beginning with Refuge. And it's not easy to write about family. My family has put up with a lot from me, and I am eternally grateful. But nevertheless, um, it's important for me to ask questions, and, and tough questions, and Yes, my Aunt B, you know, did not understand what I was attempting to do, writing a book about the rise of Great Salt Lake and the death of Mother. And I thought I was crazy, um, thinking maybe there is no relationship with the two. But I tell the story of, of going home, pulling out this childhood easel, taking two pens in two hands, and writing Mother, Mormon Church, uh, Cancer on one side, writing Great Salt Lake, Bird Refuge, uh, on the other, circling both, seeing that there was nothing to connect them, I drew two lines down and wrote narrator, TTW, circled that. And standing back from afar, I realized I had drawn a map of the female reproductive organs. And I thought, I can do this. I'm really writing from that place of what we know as women from our bodies. And that gave me tremendous courage. And if courage can be defined as sustained focus, um, that I think that's what it takes to write out of the truth of our lives. Then you ended up in a Kinko's and, and, and ran into Mark Strand. <laughs> I did. Of, I of had all my people. nightgown at yeah. that point. I stuffed it in <laughs> to my Levi's as I put them on. Um, and my cowboy boots tore down Immigration Canyon, went into Kinko's. Um, I had pulled everything out that had to do with Mother and my family, and I wanted it printed in the brightest paper possible. It was two in the morning. Um, the woman behind the counter said, you might not be able to read it. I said, it doesn't matter. Um, in walks Mark Strand. He looked worse than I did. And I thought, I cannot believe she's going to hand me back a bright turquoise manuscript, and he's going to see it. And uh, I looked at Mark, and I just, I just said, are there days where you feel like you cannot write one more word? And at that moment, Tom, he could have slayed me. Hmm. And he looked at me, and he said, every single day. She handed me the manuscript. He didn't even notice. Um, I left. I recalibrated the manuscript, realizing there was too much white here, too intense about birds, too much blue here, too much intense about family. My task was to create a light blue manuscript where these two stories were integrated. So I have Aunt B to thank for that. (laughs) And Mark Strand 
to keep me going. Yes. If you just joined us, we're talking with Terry Tempest-Williams on Access Utah today. Um, I was, as an opera buff, I was very pleased to discover, I think it's Chapter 52, an experience you and your father had going to the opera. I love opera, don't you, Tom? I'd love it, love it. You talk about a very moving experience at uh, in Der Rosenkavalier. It's a, it's a comic opera, but there are melancholy moments. And then especially um, you, uh, you and your father went to Die Frau in a Schatten, uh, Strauss's the, the Woman Without a Shadow. Light right. and shadow uh, are another theme that runs uh, through the book. Um, if I, I appreciate cha- your careful reading. I just want to say that to you. Thank oh, you. Thank you. Um, you say, we as women exist in direct sunlight only. What if you talk about that? I was saying that that's a myth. Yeah, that's, that's the myth, yes. That we exist in sunshine only. You know, I think there's this myth that, how are you? Great. Everything's perfect. Not true. And if we don't dwell in the shadows and acknowledge them, embrace them, um, we will continue to project on others, which wreaks havoc. I love, I love the opera, The Woman Without a Shadow, because it addresses those issues. And I love that my father went with me. It's known, as you know, as the Mount Everest of operas. It's four hours long. It's a fairy tale. It's difficult. And my father said, I'm happy to go with you as long as it has a halftime. <laughs> and I said, there's actually two. But it's a, it's a beautiful story about how we, and actually in this case, it's that we gain our shadows through our children. And I think that's very true. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder... Our children bring us to our knees, yeah. no matter what age they come to us. And so that that's monumental as you as you contemplate, I guess, possibility of, of having a child. You know, Brooke and I are childless by choice. Um, however, at fifty, um, I became a mother. Uh, we adopted uh, Louika Kumba. It's complex. It's exquisite. It's unorthodox. Um, it, for Brooke and me, and for Louis as well, it's a redefinition of family. I'm not his mother. He has a mother. Brooke is not his father, but it is a reconfiguration of what family looks like. Um, he was my translator in Rwanda. He came to the United States at 24. I met him at 21. He's now 30. And he's changed our lives. Hmm. And he's also brought me to my knees. Um, it's deeply humbling, but I would not be the person that I am. And I think Louis has has certainly shown me my shadow. And uh, and yet, that's where the joy is as well. Uh, so again, these beautiful gifts of life that we could never anticipate that um, bring us to our voice, that allow us to enter that space of silence and deep listening and to grow as human beings. And I don't know what else matters more than that. I wonder if you would uh, read uh, page 161. Uh, for us. The, this is at the end of this experience with uh, your father and the, and the opera. Uh, and I think you're right, you, you were both very moved. My father, we were both standing side by side in um, rapturous applause. My father loved it as well. Where would you, it's on 161? 161, yeah. I don't have the book in front of me. I just have an, uh, an e-book, which I don't have on this computer, but I believe it's 161. Um, I think the e-book is different. Oh, okay. So if you could give me the passage. This would, um, this would be after the opera has ended, and okay. um, your, your father and you are reacting to the opera. And then he talks about um, how he has reacted to the, the death of your mother. Okay. Uh, let me see. My father was equally moved. 
During one of the intermissions, he told me in a rare moment that because of the power of Mother's presence, he rarely spoke. No need. She covered for him. It was not until after her death that he really began to engage socially. People tell me I've become much more gregarious since Diane died, he said. I am much more involved with our friends now. He paused. I've learned a lot from living alone. When I hear that someone has lost a spouse or child, the next day I just knock on their door. It doesn't matter what I say. What matters is I am there. Very moving. He's and and as I read early in the book, it it, it surprised me that he became more gregarious, because it it seemed like he was such force of nature. But I I think that's a point. That's what I hear. I I uh, you know thankfully haven't experienced uh, death really close to me. But uh, that's what I hear from other people is just being there. Just being there is the point. And it goes back to I think the theme of of this conversation, Tom, the power of presence that. And again, where I thought I was writing a book about voice, what we say, um, I think it's more about what we do and what we feel. And sometimes that does mean silence. But I think that what we're really talking about is presence, being present with one another, being present with the land, being present with our sorrow, being present with our joy. And so all of those things are, uh, are connected to voice? And I think that, you know, the emptiness of my mother's journals, who would have ever imagined? And it, it, I just, I feel deeply grateful that she knew me well enough that 25 years later, I would, I would be possessed with the gift that she gave me when I was a woman, barely 30, that now as a woman, 56 years old, uh, she allowed me to contemplate emptiness Hmm. in, in, in the fullest way, that my mother's journals tell me nothing. My mother's journals tell me everything. Hmm. And, and you write at the end, my mother's gift is the mystery. Each day I begin with the empty page. And I, I suppose that, that's the way with all of us. Indeed. Yeah. We uh, are out of time. The book is um, When Women Were Birds. It's uh, Terry Tempest Williams' reaction to her mother's uh, empty journals. And uh, what does it mean to have a voice? Tom, thank you so much. I so appreciate the depth of this conversation, and thank you for your voice for all of us here in Utah. Well, thank you. We really appreciate it. Thanks for listening today. The following is an encore presentation. However, we would like you to participate with this conversation. You can do so at upr.org or on our Facebook page or on Twitter with hashtag AccessUtah. The Be Well Moment is made possible by the USU Department of Human Resources Wellness Program at usu.edu hr. We've all heard the old saying, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. But how many of us actually routinely receive preventive services? Preventive services can include regular physical exams conducted by your primary care physician, blood tests, certain measurements like weight and blood pressure, immunizations, and screening tests to look for signs of cancer or heart disease. All of these services can help your doctor identify common yet potentially serious health concerns early, and early detection means early and hopefully more successful treatment. So how do you know which prevention services you need? 
The best thing to do is check with your general doctor. He or she should be able to tell you which tests you need and how often you need them, based on your gender, age, and family history. Keeping up with routine health screenings is key to preventing disease and staying healthy. This is Dana Barrett for the Be Well program at Utah State University. Be well, Utah. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Crumb Brothers Artisan Bread at 300 South and 300 West in Logan, now open Monday through Saturday until 2, with a changing menu of a specialty salad, French breakfast pastries with local seasonal fruits and lunch sandwiches. And the Utah Shakespeare Festival, presenting Shakespeare's Richard II with seven other productions through October 2013 in Cedar City, www.bard.org. Before summer ends, clear out your garage and donate the vehicle you no longer need to Utah Public Radio. Just call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org and we'll take care of everything. From picking up your vehicle to sending you all of the needed paperwork, just call 877-877-7501 or donate securely online at upr.org. Commentator, Thad Box. We have become a throwaway culture where manufacturing disposal of packaging is often more costly than the product. We spend millions of tax dollars trying to manage one element at the expense of the larger system. My town is considering a new high-tech sewage treatment plant to meet EPA affluent standards, especially the control of phosphorus. But energy needed to run the plant, build the plant, and produce chemicals reduces air quality in a valley that some days has the worst air in the nation. And there are people like Robert Gearhart who have spent their career extracting phosphorus using marshes as a biological system. Bob is a professor emeritus at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California. He was on the USU engineering faculty back in the 70s. A world expert on biological waste treatment system even has a marsh near Arcata name for him where people swim, eat fish, and camp in an area that serves as a sewage treatment plant, a recreation area, a wildlife sanctuary, and an aquaculture project. Systems he designed in Lima, Peru, and other countries have been featured in documents and journals. Bob and his USU dean talked about using the ample wetlands west of Logan for a clean biological system some 45 years ago. And there are people currently on the USU faculty that could form a team to turn Cache Valley marshes into a positive example like those of Arcata, Lima, and elsewhere. Controlling pests and treating sewage will cost Utah taxpayers whatever we do. Because chemical treatment plants make some folks rich, there will always be advertisements, lobbying, and people insisting we use their chemical technology. We have officials in Washington, Salt Lake, and perhaps even locally, whose campaign chests are stuffed for profit corporations wanting to sell their magic. If our officials ignore scientific evidence about working with nature rather than controlling it, we'll be taxed and live in a technology-altered system instead of using our natural resources. This is Thad Box. 
KUSRHD1 Logan, KUSKHD1 Vernal, KUSLHD1 Richfield, KUST HD1 Moab, KUSUF.